And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, May 31st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms would get new marching orders under this bill, plus some new ideas to make the CDC more effective in pandemics. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the IRS faces a $20 billion cut to its 10-year modernization fund, part of the tentative agreement to raise the federal debt ceiling and avoid default. Now, the IRS has already outlined plans to spend that $80 billion it was supposed to get under the Inflation Reduction Act. White House officials say the cuts to IRS spending wouldn't require the IRS to scale back its short-term modernizing and that the agency may ask Congress for more multi-year funds by the end of the decade anyway. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. And Jory, this is all kind of money they never had in the first place because it hasn't been appropriated yet. So there's a cut to an anticipated increase. That $20 billion trimmed off. Where does the agreement say that money will actually end up? So that money is going elsewhere within the federal government. White House officials told reporters that this money would be repurposed. Ten billion of it in fiscal 2024 would be repurposed uh, elsewhere within the appropriations process for that fiscal year. And then in fiscal 2025, another 10 billion would be repurposed for non-defense priorities elsewhere within government. This really doesn't have a material impact on the IRS in terms of its spending of that remaining $60 billion. These are multi-year no-year funds for the IRS. And so this doesn't mean that in FY 2024 or 2025, they don't have access to any of those funds. It's all drawing from this big pool in the end. Sure. So for their modernization plans, they already have, as you pointed out, issued their plans and how they wanted to use the money. So they haven't gotten to the end of the money yet, let's say. So they still have the beginning of the money. So is there any effect of this on their short-term plans? The White House doesn't expect that in the short term, the IRS will need to change its plans at all, really. Uh, What they said is that there was probably a chance the IRS would need to come back anyway to any future administration down the line at the end of that decade and possibly come up with more money to finish whatever projects were in the works past that $80 billion. And so now the So now that we're in a different reality, uh, they're going to use what they can for the $60 billion. That includes significant hiring. The IRS said that it's going to, in the upcoming years through the end of fiscal 2024, hire 20,000 new employees. That focus on that hiring is going to be in terms of taxpayer experience personnel as well as enforcement. As far as those, you know, longer term visions for what the IRS can do with this money, you know, we're also looking at a modernization of the individual master file and the IRS moving on to its own direct e-file system that would compete with the turbo taxes of the world. I think they should get a contractor to fix the master file for free and then get 10 years of no taxes or something might be more effective than the billions they've already spent on that crazy database. Anyway, now this bill, this which again is not law yet as we speak, we've got a few more days to go to see if it is law, but that does put caps on spending levels for the rest of the government, correct? It feels a little bit like sequestration. It does. What this deal, which is not yet law yet, what it would entail is a 
freeze of non-defense discretionary funding for fiscal 2024. White House officials say that would basically feel like a continuing resolution for most agencies there. And for fiscal 2025, it would cap growth of non-defense discretionary spending to 1%. Now, Veterans Affairs got special treatment, as it often does under budget impasses. Somehow veterans, nobody seems to argue so much about they should have. What about Veterans Affairs Department spending under the deal? Right. Yeah. Well, under the earlier deal, the VA did stand to lose uh, quite a bit of uh, jobs and personnel uh, under a deal that would have capped spending at FY 2022 levels. Uh, but that is not the deal that we're talking about here. The deal would fully fund the VA's toxic exposure fund at levels proposed by the Biden administration for the next two years. That would be $20 billion in FY 2024 and $21.5 billion in 2025. All right. And uh, I know that you spent the Memorial Day weekend, like so many people in Washington, Maybe you got a cookout in, but you still had to read that 99-page bill, which, you know, pretty small by some of the standards Congress has had for its bills in recent years. What else did you find in there? Yeah, 99 pages is quaint by some of these bill standards. What also is part of this deal is a rescission of most of the remaining COVID-19 emergency funds that are out there. That's to the tune of about $30 billion. That's not all of the money that's out there. There's about $5 billion that's going to remain intact for agencies to research next-generation COVID-19 vaccines. Some of that money is within the VA itself. They plan to keep that just, they budgeted that as part of their current FY 2023 operations. That's about $2 billion. All right. And so default then would be avoided when this becomes law, presumably, and the Senate will vote on it as far as we can tell by the end of the week. Presumably, and they would have to vote on it by the end of the week to avert this uh, unprecedented government default. What the Treasury Department says is that they would need that deal to materialize by June 5th. That is the latest date of them figuring out how much revenue is still on hand to pay debts as they're scheduled. They've gone back on that date a couple times, but they have checked the couch cushions, found a couple billion here and there. And so June 5th is the final date that they would be able to keep paying the government's debts. And Jory, before we let you go, I wanted to return to the IRS that we talked about at the top here. And Danny Werfel, the commissioner of several months now, I guess, also, besides having a spending plan for modernization, had a workforce plan that spanned 10 years. And does that look like that'll stay intact, do you think, under this deal? Well, there's a very good chance that they will need to go back and modify that. Commissioner Werfel said that beyond the FY 2024 hiring plans, they were going to come up in a matter of weeks, a plan that would look at the IRS's hiring needs across the decade. Now, given that they are about to lose about a quarter of this proposed funding for modernization, uh, it would be hard to believe that that would be the same vision for the workforce without those funds. All right. So all depends on what happens through the week and through the weekend. And we'll just find out. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, some new ideas to make the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention more effective in pandemics. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
Among the troubling programs on the Government Accountability Office's high-risk list is the ability of Health and Human Services Department to manage the national response to health emergencies. In the most recent pandemic, the response of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention was, you might say, disjointed. That left many other agencies to make their own decisions. My next guest says CDC reform should include a way to make CDC expertise available to help other agencies' responses. Sanjay Patnaik is director of the Center on Regulation and Markets at the Brookings Institution. He joins me now. Mr. Patnaik, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, the outgoing director proposed quite a number of reforms for the CDC to be more agile, to get its information out more quickly. Your idea here, though, is that there is an essential reform that's needed that is not addressed in this reform plan. Tell us what that is. Exactly. So what we have seen during the pandemic is really that an issue like a pandemic is a multidisciplinary problem. It affects a lot of different parts of the government and a lot of different parts of our economy. And so what we are proposing is that the CDC should actually be part of what is called an interdepartmental coordination group that basically includes multiple agencies that could be affected and have decision-making power in a pandemic, such as HUD and the Department of Defense, for instance. And so an interdepartmental coordination group would bring these different agencies together in order to share expertise, both outwards from the CDC, but also uh, to provide input from other agencies to the CDC's decision-making. Right. And that really wasn't the case. You've cited a bunch of agencies that made decisions on how to respond to the pandemic completely on their own. Exactly. I mean, there was a lot of disjointed efforts uh, within the federal government, and we've seen uh, some of the problems that arose because of it. For instance, just to give one example, developing valid COVID-19 tests where the U.S. was far behind many other countries. Right. And then agencies like the Transportation Department or Housing and Urban Development, you felt made decisions that were just not informed by enough expertise from health professionals or people that had knowledge in these areas. Exactly. And the other way around, uh, the CDC itself is a, is a body that is being used to having very long-term academic research. And so they also need to know feedback and information from other agencies to actually inform the decision-making and be able to more rapidly make decisions. So is your prescription for change something the CDC would do, or is it something that would have to originate, say, with a bill maybe in Congress to establish this type of interdepartmental committee, and then CDC would be a part of it? Yeah, that's a great question. And so one of the templates that we can look to is the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness, which coordinates homeless policy among 19 federal agencies, because again, it's like a pandemic, it's a very interdisciplinary problem. And that council was authorized by Congress in the Homeland Assistance Act of 1987. So we would need some kind of um, provision, some kind of act by Congress to establish a similar interdepartmental coordination group. But it has been quite effective, and it can show that when you try to coordinate this multiple agencies, that often decide in a very insular fashion, you can actually achieve much better results in terms of policy outcomes. We're speaking with Sanjay Patnaik. He is director of the Center on Regulation and Markets at Brookings. And you cite a lot of agencies, again, as we've said, acting kind of arbitrarily or maybe the best they could with what they knew. But isn't that also true of CDC? Because the advice kept changing on what to do about masks and what to do about protective gear, this, that, and the other, to the point where there was pretty much mass confusion, not only among federal agencies, but among the public. What's the root problem there? 
I totally agree. And again, I think going back to my earlier point, one of the root issues is that the CDC is used to doing long-form academic research, right, but not moving very rapidly uh, in real time and then assessing different aspects that are not only scientific. And I think that's a key here, right? When we look at the pandemic, yes, obviously the health aspects, the scientific aspects are important, but the pandemic touches on so many issues of our social, economic, and political lives that when you make decisions, you have to take these into consideration as well. And that was one of the problems of the CDC. CDC's decision-making, they really only focused on the scientific and health aspects, but kind of like did not pay enough attention to the political and the economic context the pandemic was happening in and the impact that the pandemic had on these parts of society. But is that really CDC's role? It is not CDC's role, but it is important to make policy decisions by looking at the effects it will have on other parts of the economy, right? You can make a scientific decision based only on the science and the health, but you have to look at what will be the impact on other parts of society. And for instance, an example is school closures, right? Like you need to be able to know what is the impact if we close schools on the well-being of children, on kind of like the economic lives of people. And so in order to do that, it is much better to try to get information both ways from other agencies. Right. So in some sense, CDC would have to operationalize its research and its scientists to kind of join in a rapid response type of decision making. By the same token, agencies that make the decisions need to inculcate some of the research thinking before they go ahead and make those decisions. Exactly. That's a perfect way to put it. And we do that already in other areas. And like I mentioned, the, the Homelessness uh, Council, but even CDC does that to some degree on bioterrorism, where they coordinate with other agencies. Right. So it sounds like there's a little bit of maybe sclerosis in CDC if they are doing this long-term research, gathering these studies and so forth in a variety of domains. I mean, there's a lot of diseases out there, but somehow they've settled into maybe a more academic mode or a more abstract mode and less of an operation mode because prevention and control is in their title. And I think that's a very good way to put it. Uh, obviously, I mean, look, that pandemic was a once in a hundred years event, uh, and it had such a profound effect on all countries around, around the world. So I think it, it like laid bare some of the shortcomings in government responses that we saw in, in different parts of the world, but especially also in the United States, and the CDC was part of that. It's one of the challenges getting the political considerations out of these decisions, because that's how it seemed to go. People's opinions of what should be the right thing somehow settled out or sifted out into political camps. And that was part of the problem, still part of the problem in some ways. Yeah, that's that's a great point. We didn't dive too much into it in our report, but trying to make it apolitical is definitely something that is super important. And I think other countries that have been more successful in the initial response, they had less politicized responses and less politicized kind of like staff decision making in those health agencies. And I think that's very important in a pandemic, right? I mean, we, we don't want that to be politicized. We want it to be driven by the best science, but with taking into consideration all the different angles that we need to look at, like the economic implications, the political and the social implications. Yeah, I guess that's what they call common sense, because, you know, when you see (laughs) one of these headlines that says experts say blah, 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 you know, my initial reaction is how did the world ever get along without experts? So there's some way needed to marshal the expertise in a way that it informs what is ultimately common sense. You need to channel it, right? You need to channel expertise in ways when you try to implement them in a practical way. And and I think there is a saying, right, like it's all about execution and about implementation and, and the pandemic has shown that is really the case. 
Do you think the CDC would benefit from longer-term leadership? I mean, in agencies that have trouble responding or have other systemic issues, you often find that there is a just a turnover continually of leadership because they're politically appointed, they're high-pressure jobs, the press gets after you and so on, so people leave after two, three years, as is the case for Dr. Walensky and you know her predecessors. Is that an issue? And should something like CDC, which, as you mentioned, is basically a research-oriented organization, should it have a term director? I think that could be really beneficial. And I think if we look at other places in the world, for instance, the European Union, that is what is kind of like the model for a lot of their decision making. It's more bureaucratized. So you don't have a lot of these political appointees. And I think that turnover can cause issues for the staff below, right? Because you have sometimes very different decision making coming in because of these political appointees. And in agencies like the CDC that are really focused on trying to rein in the pandemic, trying to solve these problems, long term decision making would be definitely better. Then the question becomes balancing that bureaucratization with accountability with someone that's there a long time. For sure. And there need to be mechanisms for that. All right. Well, we'll figure it out somehow. Sanjay Patnaik is director of the Center on Regulation and Markets at Brookings. Thanks so much for joining me. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his article at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, what's in that 99-page debt ceiling deal for contractors? But first, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms would get a new marching order under this bill. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A House bill would change the way the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, ATF, would deal with tribal police departments. It would give them easier access to duty weapons by eliminating ATF regulations that don't apply to other police departments. For details, the bill's sponsor, South Dakota Republican Representative Dusty Johnson. Representative Johnson, good to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. What is the problem here with tribal police departments and their access to weapons? Well, there are lots of problems that law enforcement agencies in Indian country face. You know, this is not one of the top three or four, but still, I think it's an important one, really for two reasons. Operationally, we're denying these officers access to the same kind of duty weapons that other police departments have. And then we're also, in many cases, charging them taxes when they purchase those weapons, which other law enforcement agencies don't have to pay. So that's an operational problem. That's dollars out of their pockets. That's fewer tools for them to use. But then the second issue is that this is not an appropriate government-to-government relationship. You know, we are called to, uh, in the Constitution, uh, in case law and practice, to make sure that we're treating these governments with an appropriate government-to-government relationship, treating them as lesser police departments, I think, is sending the wrong message about this important relationship. And in general, do tribal police departments have the same sort of training and criminal justice background that you find in other police departments? Yes, there can be an exceptionally high level of professionalism within many tribal departments. And it varies from state to state. And in South Dakota, I know they are invited to participate in the same law enforcement training program that other law enforcement agencies and officers in South Dakota take part in. There are certainly federal training programs as well. The biggest problem, I think, facing so many of these departments are just resources. You look at the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. This is a reservation the size of Connecticut. 
And, you know, it comprises a number of counties that are among the poorest in the United States of America. They've got 33 slots for law enforcement officers to take care of this massive community. Many of those positions are not filled in any given week. And so resources are a serious problem. I wouldn't allege that my bill goes anywhere near enough to solving that problem. But again, it does help on the margins. We need lots of efforts like that. Well, why does ATF levy them for the purchase of weapons? Is that because they are required to by existing law or is that policy of ATF? Well, it has been the policy. Uh, I don't know enough about the backstory about why they're interpreting some statutes the way they are. It's a relatively nuanced determination. I mean, they are not charging some law enforcement agencies that tax. Others, they are charging them. It really turns on whether or not they are cross-deputized with a federal law enforcement agency. And I don't understand why there would be that language in the statute if there is. But in any event, my bill would clear it up. Right. You could probably spend months and months and never get to the bottom of it. because That's just the way some of these longstanding, you know, agency bureaucracies and their processes operate. And there is also a provision in the bill having to do with machine guns prior to 1986. And what's going on there? Yeah, again, there are a number of weapons that are denied these law enforcement agencies, and this is mostly about equality and parity for me. I just don't like the idea that law enforcement agencies off-reservation are allowed access to certain tools that law enforcement agencies you know, on an Indian reservation are denied. I think if we're going to be respectful, we need to make sure that we've got parity in that treatment. We're speaking with South Dakota Republican Representative Dusty Johnson, and I guess, as you allude, this leads to bigger issues with tribal government, tribal administration, and these are centuries-old issues. What do you think are the top problems that the federal government could help Indian and reservation governments with? Well, when I visit Indian country in South Dakota, you know, I'm talking tribal leaders on a regular basis. They talk to me, I mean, first off, about law enforcement and about resource adequacy and about how much more dangerous their communities are because the federal government is not making good on their obligations to provide. It is a serious problem. Secondly, they talk about a highly related issue, which is how so many drugs are finding their way into Indian country, destroying these communities. That is not unique. To Indian country. I mean, all of our country are dealing with, you know, 100,000 drug overdose deaths a year, fentanyl that is ripping apart families, meth that is doing the same. But the problem is even more acute on reservation. And I'm often told, gosh, we got to do what we can to stop that flow of drugs over the southern border. Third, I would mention uh, roads and other infrastructure. Uh, again, this is a resource advocacy issue, and it is holding back development in Indian country. Those are the big ones that are brought up regularly, although certainly they're not the only ones. And getting back to the law enforcement question and this cross-deputization, I mean, if a tribal police force is feeling that it needs to have reinforcements or more help, in general, can they call, say, the local county police where they're operating or the state police and they'll get augmented response? Is that something that happens? Yes. The interesting thing, so at least in Indian country in South Dakota, they get along. I mean, they understand that they have one another's backs, and there is a high degree of professionalism and respect. Sometimes the politicians can get in the way, right? I mean, I feel like the law enforcement agents, they understand that they have a shared mission to keep communities safe. And, you know, reservations are so often a patchwork quilt of jurisdiction. You may have in a relatively small area, you may have 
game fish and parks officers. You may have highway patrol. You would have a county sheriff. You would have federal BIA. You would have tribal officers that are through a tribally administered law enforcement agency. But listen, the cops understand they need to work together to keep communities safe. There are certainly times where that jurisdictional patchwork quilt makes their jobs more difficult, but they want to do the right thing. They want to work together. Congressman Dusty Johnson of South Dakota, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with more about the bill at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. Still to come, what's in that 99-page debt ceiling deal for contractors? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. That debt ceiling bill must traverse a tortured path to become law. Nothing's guaranteed quite yet. But presuming it does become law, it will put defense and non-defense spending under caps, even with a military pay raise staying in place. Contractors are analyzing what exactly it all means. David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, finds more questions than answers, and he joins me now. And, David, you have read the 99-page report. 99, pretty brief by congressional standards, but still a lot of stuff that's hard to decipher. And spending caps plus no real agency-by-agency spending plan, and that to you leads to some pretty tough questions. Right, Tom. Thank you for having me on here. And you're right, it's only 99 pages, but of course, like many legislative proposals, you actually have to refer to the underlying provisions that are being modified in order to tell what the language actually does. But the big deal for us is is the money side. Uh, as you well know, without funding, there's no contract, right? And and the work that contractors do is not just for the money. It's actually to keep the agencies operating and moving forward, everything from legacy systems modernization to day-to-day operations to innovation for the future. So this Fiscal Responsibility Act puts some real constraints around spending for FY24. Now, Tom, we're on the eve of the 1st of June. June, July, August, September, we're only four months away from the start of fiscal year 24. So there's not a lot of time to figure it out. And this bill, while it sets overall caps, as you point out, doesn't distribute that money agency by agency, appropriations bill by appropriations bill, except for defense and for part of VA. Right. So they, in a sense, missed an opportunity to do some important work towards not having a Lord knows how long continuing resolution in fashioning this. They still have the question of actually getting around to appropriations for 2024, which doesn't seem too likely at this point. No, you're right. And, and, uh, you know, we've only had some agencies have had two appropriations on time in the last 17 years. Others have had one on time, and that was in 2000, FY 2009. So that's quite a while back, 15 years ago for many agencies. So we expect to start the fiscal year under a CR. The question is, how long will it last? And actually, one of the interesting provisions here is if we're still under a CR on January 1st, which is true more than half the time, then there will be an automatic 1% reduction uh, from the FY23 spending level. A CR is typically last year's level carried forward into next year with no new starts and no stops. That 1% reduction could be a big deal depending on your estimates of inflation especially. Right, and you also questioned whether the uh, DOD's legislative proposal to allow it to start new programs even under a CR, that's kind of in doubt now too. 
Well, it's a really interesting proposal. It's a, in the you know every year the Defense Department sends up several tranches of legislative proposals. They get developed inside DOD. They have to be cleared by the Office of Management and Budget before they're submitted to Congress. The third tranche, released a couple months ago, had a very interesting provision that said uh, that they would allow the Air Force, and presumably if the provision was adopted, it would apply to the other military departments as well, would allow the Air Force to spend some research and development money on new starts, even though you're under continuing resolution and new starts are banned. Very limited in scope, very focused, and, and the language tied to this from OMB made it clear this is in response to the need to move faster because of the threats from China. Right Now, I don't know what the, in the bill would require that, right, and, and would make you want to do that. And this is designed to be something the authorizing committees would pass. All the appropriators have to do is not interfere with it, and it would allow some of that to start to take place. Very interesting idea, probably even more important under the Fiscal Responsibility Act than it was before. Hard to tell how that's going to work out. Right. And it's also worth noting that the last year's NDAA didn't really get done till the stroke of minutes to the deadline, which was not the end of the fiscal year, but the end of the calendar year. And now here we are, four months, as you point out, toward the end of the fiscal year. Will they get that NDAA done by the end of the fiscal or the calendar? That's also up in the air. Big question as well. Now, for defense, this bill does allow you to do two things that's not true for most civilian agencies. It actually sets a target. So we know what the amount would be that gives both the authorizers and the appropriators something to aim for. Don't have to have a congressional budget resolution in order to do that. For the civilian agencies, on the other hand, uh, that's not at all the case. Although there is amount set aside for the VA, uh, that VA is merged with MILCON, military construction, in separate appropriations account. Other appropriations, the other nine appropriations bills for the federal civilian agencies, we don't know how much they're going to get. If you cap it at FY23 levels, that doesn't necessarily mean each agency will get what it got into FY23. This really has to be worked out very, very quickly, and, uh, and I don't have a clue how, how this is going to play out. And what we know is that if you don't know how much money you're going to get next year, you're not as eager to spend this year's money. And again, there's only four months left in this fiscal year. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. So that makes it hard for agencies to plan. And therefore, they tend to pull in on spending because they don't know what's going to happen. And that cascades down into what contractors can do to plan for their own fiscal financial futures. That does. It absolutely does. And and if we do end up with a continuing resolution, which is probably pretty much a certainty for the start of fiscal year 24, the question is, do we have an agreement on the spending levels at that point? Can we get that wrapped up and out the door before the, before Christmas, as you point out, that we typically do? Or does it extend into next year? Next year, of course, is an election year. And once you get into an election year, kind of seems like we're already there sometimes, doesn't it? But once you get into an election year, it's much harder to cut those kinds of deals. We really need to avoid the risk of multiple sequential continuing resolution three months into December, another three months into March, then get through the whole fiscal year. And then you're only weeks away from a presidential election, so you probably get another CR for FY25 and on beyond there. It would be a disaster for federal operations. And even if they were to somehow come up with budgets, if the caps that are in place because of the most recent bill, again, not law yet, but we presume it will be after they get the party flanks kind of in line, it would probably be below the inflation level because 
inflation isn't what it was at the peak of a year ago, but it's still there, 5 6%, 4 5%. And then you couple in a healthy pay raise for the civilian and defense sides that squeezes out money for these discretionary acquisition spending. Fair to say? Yes. Let's look at the numbers, right? So we know that OMB's directed inflation estimates for the FY24 budget was 2.4%. FY24 starts in four months. Inflation right now is not showing any sign of being under 2.4% by the time you get to October. And if it's over 2.4% in October, then it has to go below 2.4% at some point during the fiscal year for that to make sense. Odds are inflation will be higher than what's built into the budget. On top of that, agencies are, are getting only the same amount of money, unless you're a defense or VA, only the same amount of money as you got in FY23. So that means you're not even getting that 2.4%. You're getting zero. But built into that is a 4.6% pay raise, as you point out, both for civilians and for uniform personnel. This is a prescription for really tight squeezes elsewhere. History says when there's tight squeezes elsewhere, contractors end up paying more than their fair share of that contribution. That's what we're worried about. And I wanted to ask you, too, about something that uh, we've noticed, you have noticed. I think our colleague Jared Serbu wrote about it at federalnewsnetwork.com, and a couple of my guests in recent weeks have commented on it. And that is, oddly, there was no real strong guidance from the Office of Management and Budget to agencies about what to do in the case of a debt ceiling crisis or whatever you want to call it, the ceiling being reached. They do this regularly when CRs come around or when there's the threat of a lapse in appropriations, but no real guidance this time around. And we're going to be there again sooner than anyone realizes. Tom, this is the 11th time in the last 13 years that we've had a debt limit crisis. So it's reasonable to assume it's not going to be the last. Right. It's almost now become an annual exercise. Now, if this bill passes, it punts it until 2025 so we can get through all of 2024 without another debt ceiling crisis. But it is coming on us. There was no guidance out from OMB, as you mentioned. And in our conversations with agencies, and you can see it through reporters' conversations as well, they were all over the map. We had agencies that said, we don't have a problem. We have plenty of appropriations. Well, that's true. But if Treasury doesn't have the cash to pay the bills, then it doesn't matter how much appropriation you have. We had agencies that said, this is just going to be like a government shutdown. Let's figure out who's essential and who's not. Let's figure out where we issue stop work orders. But without, without a lapse in appropriations, that make no sense at all. PSC argued that, in fact, we could take a different approach and urged OMB, instead of looking at shutting down, instead send the signal that even under default, the government is still operating, fully functioning, because what's going to happen if we default? more than likely we'd get a deal really quickly, right? Because you'd see a lot of big problems in the financial marketplace affecting everybody globally as well. Plan for that. Plan that you're not going to be shutting down. Keep it going. We'd love to see OMB wrestle with that question. We desperately need agencies to have the guidance because we heard over and over again, hey, we're waiting for guidance from OMB and we don't have any yet. David Berto is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And I hope that the next time we're not talking about deadlines. Let's hope so. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Defense Department might have gotten about all of the mileage it can out of its special pay and personnel system for cyber and IT people. Now officials say it's time to expand it, potentially delivering more competitive salaries to tens of thousands of more IT employees across the department.
Federal News Network's Jared Serbu writes about this in federalnewsnetwork.com. He joins us now. Well, what has changed if everyone, apparently there's more people they feel they need to get into the system? Are they running short of people? What's their what's their play here? Yeah, that's right. This actually goes back several years now, Tom, to when Congress first created what's called the Cyber Accepted Service, which was in the 2016 National Defense Authorization Act. So going quite a ways back, it took DOD quite a while to actually use all of the authority that Congress gave it to move folks into the special pay and personnel system for cyber employees. DOD's interpretation of the law that Congress wrote back then is that it only allows them to move about 15,000 people into this special pay system. They are now, this summer, planning to send Congress a legislative proposal that would expand that potentially up to about 75,000 employees. So a lot of extra folks potentially into that system where they almost certainly would get more pay than they're getting right now from the general schedule. And do they have a pretty good idea of the total cost of this? Because I just ask, because topically what's going on now is there's a pay raise coming across the board for DOD. And now, thanks to the debt deal... It looks like there's going to be some caps on spending, even for DOD, although it's up a little bit. Yeah, there's there's no real way to estimate the total cost because, first of all, we don't know that they would go all the way up to that 75000 estimate. And frankly, that's one of the things DOD likes about this cyber-accepted service approach. You can pick and choose individual positions that you want to convert from the standard uh, Title V system into the cyber-accepted service rather than just moving an entire military service or moving the entire Defense Department which obviously would be a very costly endeavor. And that's a contrast to the special salary rate that the Office of Personnel Management rolled out earlier this year, or at least started to propose is probably a better way to put it, for all 2210s, as they call them, all IT employees across the federal government, that that you know departments at the department level or agency level could fully opt their workforce into or out of. That's obviously very expensive, and it's one of the reasons why it's looking increasingly unlikely that it'll actually happen in any agency this year. DOD, for example, estimates that going to that special salary rate for everyone would cost about $740 million per year. That's obviously not in the budget because that proposal from OPM came out after the budget submission was out. So Patrick Johnson, the director of the DOD CIO's Workforce Innovation Directorate, talks here about why um, the the uh, department doesn't prefer that approach. So you can imagine the department's not in favor of taking that approach that wide, wide swath to, you know, get after everybody like that. So we favor a more targeted approach where we look at the areas within 2210s because 2210s, I've got 52 different work roles coded against 2210s when I look. So I've got about 40, 47,000 2210s of that, 37,000 authorizations. You're looking at about 11,000 uh, vacancies. So how do I move the move the dial? I would rather focus on the top 20 uh, work roles where I have high, high attrition rates of over 50%. How do I get that down? And then manage it, manage it that way. I mean, think about that, Tom, 50% vacancies in some of those work roles. And, and one of the other good things DOD has done to get after this problem is coming up with much more discrete definitions of what those work roles are, rather than just having a giant pool of all 2210s. They have literally dozens and dozens of defined work roles that are based on what people actually do and not based on their job title. That was a result of the cyber workforce strategy that DOD uh, rolled out earlier this year. Plus, there's some expansion going on. Artificial intelligence is coming on real big, and there's the idea of a little bit more aggressive cyber outreach, let's call it, versus purely defensive monitoring of the networks. So the field itself is changing, and that seems to 
give them some impetus to go ahead with this. Yeah, that's right. And those AI and data and software related work, uh, you know, those are some of those 72 work roles that DOD has already come up with. And I think they're most likely going to be adding more. And another reason I think they see this cyber accepted service approach as preferable is it also gives them a way to tailor the pay to not just individual positions, but individual geographic areas. They, they do that with what's called a targeted local market supplement that's designed in, in some ways a lot like locality pay. It's designed to make the positions that you have in a given geographic area competitive with what labor costs actually are for comparable private sector positions in that area. You know, the government pay scale, even in that system, is probably never going to match up with what private uh, private sector employers are paying, but it at least gets them a lot closer. Right, because they do have installations in Southern California, as well as in distant places in the upper Midwest that are cold all the time. Those places simply command different salaries. But on the other hand, they might need to attract people, say, from a nice area, that's really attracted to the mission. But if you're going to move to Minot, North Dakota, then you probably need to pay people to go there. I think that's right. And I think DOD is increasingly moving to, you know, having its cyber workforces in large concentration centers. I mean, you, you think about, you know, the Army's new cyber, cyber command in Georgia consolidated a lot of its workforce in one place there. And you see similar things in other services. And, and, and you know, that, that's, that's another reason why having these targeted local market supplements probably makes sense, because you can do a lot more tailoring and thinking about what, it is at, what does it actually cost to attract and retain people in a particular area. I guess maybe the downside is not so much a downside, but the potential danger is getting into a situation where pay patterns developed that could be seen as discriminatory if you look at the workforce as a whole. Yeah, I think that's a legitimate concern. And another thing to watch as this all plays out is the extent to which remote work is still allowed for a a lot of this workforce. You know, obviously, everybody went remote during COVID. Different organizations are having (laughs) different uh, responses now that we're able to get back into the office. And so if you have a large proportion of the workforce that's still remote, how exactly do you adjust their targeted local market supplements? Which geographic area do you assign them to? I don't think we completely know the answers to questions like that yet. All right. So just to summarize, then, they've got 15,000 positions authorized under the Special Accepted Service, Cyber, and now they're looking to 75,000, but that's the ceiling, and likely they won't go that number, but somewhere between 15,000 and 75,000. Yeah, 75,000 I would describe as probably more like an estimated ceiling. And I should emphasize that really depends on Congress authorizing this additional authority, this expansion of the Cyber Accepted Service and the upcoming NDAA. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Thanks so much. You bet, Tom. And check out his federal report at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. 